Welcome back to our study in the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians. Glad you're with us tonight. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And I was hoping to finish and get up through 16, but I didn't quite make it. So uh, we'll take it a little at a time and continue through uh, our study here in this great epistle. Let's, as we always do, begin with prayer. Thank you, Father, again, for the privilege of meeting this way. We bless you, Lord, for the opportunity to meet with each other, even though we don't live close to each other, and we're grateful for the technology that allows us to do this. We pray, Lord, that your word would have its due effect in all of our lives, and that we would be strengthened and encouraged and motivated by what we know to be true. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us without your word, but you have given it to us, and you have maintained it. And we bless you, Lord, for this. We thank you, Lord, that you, you used the Apostle Paul and many others, prophets and apostles, to uh, write down these words being carried along by your Ruach HaKodesh, by your Holy Spirit, so that we would have your living word abiding with us and in us. We thank you. Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, we address you directly because we know that you are with us and in us. And that by your mercy and your grace, through the work that our Savior Yeshua has accomplished, all of this you have made real and actual in our lives. Help us, Father, to grow in our understanding and in our resolve, in our faith. Bless us, Lord, that we might walk in the footsteps of our Messiah and that we might be lights in this world. So we bless you, Lord, for this in Yeshua's name. Amen. We are going to read chapter 2 again. I'm going to read it this time out of the New American Standard Bible. And we try to read the chapter that we're in each time, even though we study only a few of the verses, because I want to impress upon you again how important it is that we keep the larger context in mind. And I would strongly suggest that uh, if you would do so, that you read through Philippians once a week. Just read the whole book. Uh, once a week so that you can kind of see the overarching uh, uh, structure as well as the message that Paul has given to us here. So here we are, chapter 2 of Philippians. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Yeshua every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Messiah I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Messiah Yeshua. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Messiah, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Once again, it's just an amazing chapter. Well, it's an amazing epistle as you read it all. Uh, Paul has been so straightforward and so uh, so careful to give us the full picture of what was going on even as he was writing from prison. So as I said, we're going to start uh, this evening with verse 14 of chapter 2. And we'll make it through verse 15. And uh, really, 14, 15, and 16 go together. Uh, 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I don't mean to be in any way pointing fingers, but those of us that have been for years uh, in this movement, which is called by a number of different names, but the so-called Messianic movement, we've seen a lot of divisions and that's somewhat to be expected in a new kind of a resurgence of, uh, of a uh, biblical point of view. Every time we see this happening in his church history, we see that there are factions and there are those that split off and divide off and so forth. But hopefully, as we continue to walk in this life of faith and as we commit ourselves to allowing the scriptures to be our basis, our foundation, 
we will find within our local communities a growing unity, a growing willingness to see the bigger picture. So many times people say, is it fulfilling my needs? Okay, well, that's a good question to ask. And if it's not, then there's need to be sought some answers. Why isn't it? Why isn't my community, where I attend every week and, and uh, I, I support and I'm part of it, why, doesn't it, why isn't it meeting my needs? But there's a whole other question that should be asked at the same time. Am I helping to meet the needs of others? This is the whole point of the metaphor of a body. The body of Messiah is what the apostolic scriptures refer the ecclesia, or what is usually translated as the church. Uh, it, it's usually considered to be this community. And Paul has already taught us in this chapter to consider the needs of others as more important than our own needs. So when I ask myself, are my needs being met? That's a good question. But the next one should be, how am I helping to meet others' needs? the needs of others. Spiritually, am I praying together with others? Am I encouraging others? Am I uh, lovingly confronting others who need to be confronted? Am I using biblical uh, basis for how I look and at the, the community I'm in and how I assess whether this community is, is doing well or not? Is it just the number of people that show up? Or is it the Word of God being lived out and helping each other, coming alongside of each other? If someone is, is stumbling, helping them to come back to the truth and so forth and so on. This is the heart of, of this whole section of, of Philippians. And it was clearly what Paul is talking about. So he starts out here in our passage, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. As I said, verses 14 through 16 form the final verses which conclude the lengthy section which began in chapter 1, verse 27. This section of the epistle opens with, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah. See, immediately this section, beginning in 127, is talking about how do we as, as community members, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, as members of the body of the Messiah, meeting together in a local community, how do we help one another? Are we conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah? The exhortation of Paul, which begins the section in verse 27 of chapter 1, is that the believers in Philippi would live in such a manner so as to prove to the surrounding unbelieving community that they were missing something of great value as they observed the love and caring which characterized the believers in Yeshua. Even more, Coming to recognize their own lives and society lacked both the desire and the ability to care for each other in such a life-giving manner. They likewise would come to recognize that it was the very life-giving gift of Yeshua himself that gave his followers the ability to establish true, self-giving community. Having recognized the life-transforming power of following Yeshua, they would see themselves as doomed to destruction unless they too would acknowledge him to be the true Messiah and would exercise faith in him who alone is the true and omnipotent Savior. 
So Paul exhorts them and us to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This is chapter 2, verse 2. You can see how this whole section is, he continues to come back to how do we help one another within the community in which we fellowship. Paul teaches us here that the unity of believers within a given local community offers a powerful testimony to the watching world of God's redeeming grace. For to put the needs and cares of others as a priority offers a significant expression of God's love for those he has saved, a love that was ultimately demonstrated in the very giving of himself to purchase their redemption. If we stop and ask ourselves, what is it that has caused so much division, not only within the Messianic movement, division within the historic Christian church? Now, granted, there are some uh, aspects of the Christian church which have maintained communities over uh, many, many, many years. Some of them even decades, and some of them even centuries. There are those that, you know, I know that uh, in the church that I grew up in, uh, there were those who were um, grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those who had uh, also worshipped there, their parents, their grandparents, uh, so forth and so on. And there was generational continuity. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone needs to go to the same location and to the same community as their parents did. But there was a sense in which they needed each other and they helped each other and they stayed together. Granted, there were always some divisions. But what is it that has caused so much division amongst the Messianic movement? Well, I have to say that I think the primary problem that we face is that we have many who are taking the role of teacher and the role of leader who have no training whatsoever, and who are easily persuaded by ideas put out on the internet or wherever. I know just just last week I got another email from someone who was uh, absolutely certain, and he'd written a paper on it and wanted me to read it and respond to it. He was ab- absolutely certain that Paul was never to be followed that Paul was contrary to Messiah, and that, in fact, he was heretical, and that nothing that he wrote should be in the Bible. And I looked briefly at what he had sent me, and all I could say was, this person hasn't done his work at all in terms of what he's telling me the Hebrew or the Greek or the Aramaic actually say. He's being led astray by others without having the ability or I don't know, not having the personal ability, but not even seeking others who would have the ability to say, is this really what the Hebrew says? Is this really what the Greek says? And so he's putting something out there that's novel. And people that are looking for something new sometimes are persuaded with that. Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying you have to know the Hebrew or the Greek you know, or the Aramaic uh, in order to study the Bible. What I'm saying is, let us come back to the scriptures, which have been proven over the millennia,
to be the word of God. Time and time and time again, the scriptures have been attacked, but they have maintained and remained because it is clear that God has inspired them and has maintained them for us. So, we keep coming back to this. It's called in the Reformation, sola scriptura. Only the scriptures in the Latin form the basis, the foundation for our faith and for how we live our faith out. And that's why it's so important for us to help each other, to encourage each other in the reading and the application and the understanding of the scriptures. Well, so Paul is asking for and commending and admonishing the people in the well, in the Messianic congregation or community of Philippi, that they should love each other indeed the way God intends us to love one another. It's self-giving, self-sacrificing. Such love is not only expressed in caring for those who are easy to love, that is, who willingly and joyfully accept the care others give them, but even more it is expressed in the ability to love those who present themselves as antagonistic or unwilling to accept the help they need. In this regard, Yeshua himself teaches us to express genuine love and caring even for our enemies. If we're to love our enemies, then can we not find a way to love one another, even those that are a bit standoffish or have their own issues and problems? Can we not find ways to care for them in a way that would be right and good and would meet their needs as best we can. Paul said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If we are to love our enemies, how much more should we give ourselves to love those who are our brothers and sisters in Yeshua? Thus Paul concludes this long section of his epistle, which is 127 through 216, by emphasizing the essential things which foster true community within the local assembly of believers in Yeshua. He starts out again, and he's, he's continuing to give us these exhortations throughout this whole section. He says here in our verse, do all things without grumbling and disputing. The Greek word translated by the NASB as grumbling is gongusmos. You can kind of hear in the word itself a grumbling. This, as I say, gongus, is onomatopoetic. What does that long word mean? It means words formed in imitation of a natural sound. Sort of like our English word murmur. What does murmur sound like? Murmur, murmur, murmur. It's like somebody talking under their breath. The root word gongus mimics the sound of a person speaking under his breath in sounds that cannot be distinguished or understood from a distance. When someone is sharing an evil report against another individual, they may do so in hushed tones that muddle the words so that others standing at a distance will not be able to hear and understand their sharing Lashon Hara. And of course, Lashon Hara is just a good Hebrew phrase for meaning evil tongue or evil speech. In all of the Pauline epistles, this is the only time he uses the noun gongusmos, grumbling. He does use the verbal form of this word in 1 Corinthians 10, 9-10, when referring to the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness. 
Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, there's our word, Vanguzo, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Here I think we gain an insight into Paul's understanding of the grumbling of the Israelites, and thus his use of the same term in our current Philippian text. He couples grumbling with the phrase, Try the Lord. To try the Lord, and I've given you the, uh, the Greek in your notes, ekpeirazomen, uh, means to test whether he has told the truth or not, which indicates a lack of faith in believing that God is infinitely good and cannot lie. When we begin to question whether God has told us the truth, what are we questioning? We're questioning his very existence. We're questioning that he truly is God, just as they did in the wilderness. What were they saying? Well, if he's God, why isn't he giving us everything we need? Here we are in this difficult uh, time and so forth and so on. Did he not just bring Israel out of Egypt with miraculous, miraculous works? Of course he did. Was it so easy for many of the Israelites to forget what he had done for them in the Exodus and think that somehow he had abandoned them to die in the desert. But wait a minute. Before we point our fingers at the Israelites for grumbling in the wilderness, in the desert, because they've forgotten the miraculous work of God in bringing them out of Egypt, have we forgotten what God did in His Son Yeshua, our Savior, on the cross? Do we wonder whether He really is good when we're in the very difficult times? Do we wonder whether He is in control of all things? Do we just wonder, why is this happening? How could He let this happen? Well, if we ask such questions, it's okay as long as we give the right answer. No, He is in control. And he knows that what he is doing is good for me and for his glory. I must trust him. I must cling to him. I must increase my faith and resolve in what he has done and what he is doing. You see, because God is infinitely good and he never lies. Numbers 23.19 God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? The answer of course, is, of course he will do what he has said. Of course he will make his promises good. And has not Yeshua promised, I will never leave you or forsake you? Well then, should we not grow in our faith during difficult times? And I know we are in some uh, very stressful times with this COVID pandemic and all of the regulations and restrictions that have been put upon us by the governments and so forth. But even here, we are able to shine as lights if we will but trust Him and follow His instructions and rest upon His strength to do what He wants us to do. Thus, In this text, Paul couples a lack of faith in accepting what God has clearly stated 
with the reality that such a lack of faith, not checked or repented of, could ultimately be the same as calling God a liar. Granted, we may not consider our grumbling to be that serious. But stop to think a moment. If God has promised to supply all of our needs, and to strengthen us as we rely upon Him, then to grumble when we come into difficulties is an indication that we have failed to trust that what He has promised He will surely do. When within our local communities of faith we allow grumbling to persist, we are engaging in that which is the fruit of the sinful flesh and thereby weakens our ability to give God the glory and praise He deserves. What God calls us to is a life of prayer and faith in Him that He, quote, causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, that doesn't mean when there are those who are doing wrongly in within a given community and causing division that they shouldn't be confronted. We shouldn't just say, well, God causes everything, it'll all work out. No, He causes all things to work together for good, and how does He do that? He does that by the obedience of His people. To love somebody may require us to, in a right attitude and in a good heart, to confront them with what they're doing. We may need to take one or two with us. But when we are genuinely loving somebody and we see that they need to be corrected in something, we'll do our best to do it in a way that they would receive it and it would be good for them. That too is love. So, this text is really uh, perfectly uh, pointed towards us as we continue to try to regather what we've lost for many of us, not having the Torah as a basis uh, for obedience to God and so forth and so on. But as we recover these beautiful and wonderful things, we have to also remember that we must maintain our unity with each other if we're going to be a light in this world of those who are looking on from the outside. In our immediate text, Paul couples grumbling gongusmos, uh, with disputing, dialogismos. The word itself can have a positive sense of the process of reasoning, content of reasoning or conclusion reached through use of reason. However, when coupled with the previous word, disputing, it surely carries the sense of verbal exchange that takes place when conflicting ideas are expressed or to dispute something, or to have an argument over something. The point Paul is making here is that while grumbling can be something that is done within one's own thought processes without necessarily making it public, but most often grumbling does become public, but you can grumble in your own spirit, right? You can say, I don't, I wish that, you know, I wish that person would go away. You never say anything to anyone, but you can think it in your in your mind, in your heart. So that's why I say the grumbling doesn't necessarily have to be public, but to add disputing, as Paul does here, means that the grumbling is openly being shared with others. Isn't that where grumbling starts? It starts with uh, within us, and then we, we take time to share, what do you think about this, and here's what I'm thinking about it, and we grumble, 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 and all that does is, what, cause others to grumble. It just multiplies. So, that's where the disputing is. 
don't you think it would be better if this happened, and I don't know why he's doing this, and I don't know why they're saying this, and so forth and so on. Thus, Paul's admonition in this verse is first, to check our inward thoughts of discontent, which produces inner grumbling. For if we allow a grumbling spirit to remain, it will inevitably result in telling others of our discontent and thus engaging in disputing. And it is such sharing of one's discontent that causes division and may cause spiritual hardship and even spiritual damage to those who are struggling in their faith. I've often thought, do we forget that there are those who maybe don't come across as, a, as weak in their faith, but they're really struggling deep down inside? When they're in a community that is, that, that is dividing against each other, what do you suppose that does to someone who has inward struggles that no one knows of? Should we not care more for each other than about our own uh, ideas and our own uh, squabbles? Yes, we should. We should consider what it is to bear the burdens of one another and thus to fulfill the, 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 the whole point of Yeshua's Messiah, our Messiah coming and dying and giving himself for us. So we fulfill the very mission of Messiah as he intends us to when we put away the grumbling and the disputing and care for the good of others as more important. It doesn't mean that we can't disagree with one another, but we must do it in a way that is genuinely seeking to engage in dialogue and come to agreement together. So, what is the antidote to grumbling and disputing as we seek to live in accordance with God's inspired word and the clear admonition of Paul in our text? It is to consistently grow strong in our faith through affirming that the scriptures are telling us the truth and committing ourselves to live in accordance with the truth of God's word. We are helped in this endeavor through consistent study of God's Word, daily engaging in prayer, and putting a high priority upon fellowship with other believers as together we feed upon God's Word, engage in corporate worship, and practice caring for each other as brothers and sisters in Yeshua. Now, I grant that there are those who um, may be in, in locations where there is no uh, community that uh, to speak of that they can fellowship with, but even as we're fellowshipping here, making this um, a priority, not just this, not just what we're doing here, but wherever it may occur where the truth is being taught. And then continuing to link up with other believers, to pray for one another, to pray with one another, and to fellowship together. So he goes on in verse six, uh, 15 to say, So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. The primary reason that all who are believers in Yeshua should strive to, quote, do all things without grumbling or disputing is so that we glorify God our Savior who has given us a new life in Him. A life that is characterized by becoming more and more like Yeshua by a life that is more and more aligned with his righteousness. Is that really our goal? Is our goal to, in everything that we do, 
give him the honor and the glory. I think we need to remind ourselves of that all the time. Now, I know there are people who have taken that whole idea in a wrong direction. Oh, does that mean I can't have a hobby? Does that mean I can't play golf? Does that mean I can't have fun? And so, no, no, that's not what it means at all. What it means is we can do all things that are proper and right and do it for the glory of God. Granted, our, our entertainment, you know, our hobbies, when we just get to relax and have a good time, or when we're at hard at work in our workaday world, or when we're dealing with issues that are very difficult. Those are the two ends of, of, of a... Um, continuum and everything in between can we really do it under the Lord yes he desires that we be happy he desires that we enjoy all good things in this life and we do so to give him the glory such a growth in true spiritual maturity will inevitably be characterized by a willingness to care for others in a way that likewise honors Yeshua so in all of that, when we put ourselves to the point of saying, I need to help this person, or I'll need to find someone to help them if they're not willing to take my help. Sometimes we can help people without them even knowing it. And sometimes that's the best way. But to care for each other is such an important part of being in the body of the Messiah. The opening line of our verse, that you will prove yourselves, is actually in the Greek, genesthe, from the verb genomai, to be, or to become, or to be born. The NESB is correct, I believe, in adding the word prove, for if we were to translate this woodenly, it would offer the sense of, so that you will become who you truly are, that is, blameless and innocent. In other words, Paul is emphasizing a very important aspect of our current walk of faith in light of the inevitable goal to which we are proceeding, namely, the promise of God that all who are in Yeshua will finally put on immortality and will dwell forever with the Lord. Isn't that where we're all heading? Well, then shouldn't we keep our eye fixed upon that? Yes. Does it mean then, and I'm kind of priming the pump here, when it says that that we should we might prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent i'm quite convinced that the way it's written i didn't get into the grammar too much here but the way that it's written clearly says because you are in god's eyes blameless and innocent why because all of our sins have been laid upon yeshua he is not declaring us guilty he has already declared those of us who are in the messiah to be not guilty that's what it means to be justified. He treats us as though we had never sinned, blameless and innocent, and yet we're in that process of becoming more of what he wants us to be. And that becoming part will in inevitably result, ultimately, in this mortal putting upon ourselves immortality. As he writes in 1 Corinthians 15.54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? No, God has given us eternity for sure. 
if indeed we are in the Messiah. Note also Paul's words in his first epistle to the Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Messiah will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. This is the goal. This is where we're heading, and it is an inevitability. For what God has begun, He will always finish. The Scriptures are clear that all who by faith are in Messiah are already reckoned by God as blameless and innocent. Believers in Yeshua are not seeking to gain their salvation, for it has already been won for us through the full payment made for our sins which Yeshua accomplished on the cross. I mean, we could have amassed a number of verses to prove this, but here's just two, Romans 8, 1 through 2. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua, for the law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has set you free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? The law is the Torah which, gives, which says the soul that sins shall die. You say, well, wait a minute, Tim, how does that not apply to us? Well, he's not talking about temporal death. That's talking about eternal death. But did Messiah Yeshua take that penalty upon himself and die in our place? Yes. And was it an infinite payment? Yes. With, from an infinite life. Only Yeshua could have accomplished that for us. And he has. That's Paul's point here. Therefore, we ought to have that in the front of our minds. And if that means we need to close our mouth and not grumble and not uh, talk you know, about others and so forth and so on, then we must do that. Because that's who we are. We are becoming whom God has made us. Thus, in our text, Paul is admonishing the Philippian believers to be who they profess to be, namely, in Messiah Yeshua and therefore declared to be righteous in the heavenly courtroom of God. To put it simply, justification is God's unchangeable declaration that the person who is in Yeshua is not guilty. The gavel has come down. The sentence has been made by the Almighty. Not guilty. Sanctification is proving who we are in Yeshua, by becoming more and more like him in thought, word, and actions. So, justification is the declaration of who we are in the heavenly court. Sanctification is becoming who we are by the work of God in our lives. When Paul writes that the Philippian believers were to prove themselves to be blameless and innocent, it is clear that blameless and innocent defines what they already are in the courtroom of God, for he has declared them not guilty on the basis that all of their sins have been paid for by Yeshua's redeeming sacrifice. And since this is true, then it is an inevitability that a true believer in Yeshua will prove himself or herself to be a redeemed child of God by having a life that is increasingly characterized by righteousness as God defines it. Now, I always have to add this, we're not the final judge. God is the final judge. We can't say, well, this person was doing well and now they slipped back and so forth and so on. We don't know what God has doing and what he will do. He, I, I keep coming back to this. 
If the thief on the cross could simply say, I believe, and Yeshua would promise him, today you will be with me in paradise, then we don't have to be the final judge, and we cannot be the final judge. God sees the heart. But for each one of us, as we think about our own lives, we know what's in our heart and our mind. Then we must say, Lord, I want to progress. I want to become more and more what Yeshua has paid the price for, to become one who more and more gives you the glory, gives you the the the, the, the praise that you deserve, and that I can draw others to understand that there's such value in giving up a life of sin and clinging to my Savior through faith in Him. So the progressing life of a believer is the fruit that proves that he or she truly is a believer. Now, some will progress more quickly than others. Some, we may have times where we take a couple steps forward and three or four steps backwards, but ultimately God will draw us back and bring us to the point of repentance. And this is the fruit of true salvation, of truly being redeemed, that he draws us back to him. To where we are children of God above reproach. Here again, Paul chooses words that emphasize the reality of a changed life and one that is maturing in conformity with the one who has made them his children. For children have a family connection through physical birth, and the same metaphor is used of those who have been adopted into the family of God through faith in Yeshua, as we read last week in Ephesians 1, 4-6, that, that before the world began... He predestined us to be sons and daughters adopted into his family. The word translated above reproach by the NESB is amomas, which carries the sense of being without defect or blemish to being without fault and therefore morally blameless. If the first two words Paul uses in this phrase, blameless and innocent, primarily emphasize the declaration of God regarding all who have been redeemed unto him, then it is likely that this word, amomos, uh, here translated above reproach, is used by Paul to describe the inevitable goal in life for which every true believer in Yeshua will strive. This does not negate that there will be, as I've said, difficulties, struggles, failings, and so forth. But what it does mean is that the overall and final characteristic of a believer's life will be one of growing in faith and in spiritual strength and ability to honor the Lord who is one's savior. What is the one of the uh, tactics of the enemy? To constantly say you're not good enough. Oh, you're you're not. Oh, people only knew what you're thinking now. If people could see what you had done back then. No, no, no. All of that has been washed clean and made right in the blood of the Lamb. If the enemy tries to bring that upon us, we say to him, "Go away. You have nothing to say." My Savior has died. He was buried and He rose again and He ascended on high and He is interceding for me now at the right hand of the Father. And all that He prays for, He gets. If you want to see what He's praying for, read John 17. It's a model of His high priestly prayer. And He's praying that of all that has been given Him, He would lose none but raise them up on the last day. It is settled. Now we must live with that in mind. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, 
Paul's emphasis in our context is that of the corporate life of the believing community, made up of believers at all stages of their spiritual journey, yet all striving to grow in their ability to honor the one who has redeemed them. This includes coming alongside of those who may be weak or who are in need of spiritual strengthening and encouragement, including loving confrontation. It is when the body of Messiah, represented by the local community of believers, strives for this goal, that the watching world is given a true testimony and message of the gospel and the reality of a life of faith in Yeshua. How are we to be this witness? We can do that individually, and we must. But we also can do this corporately. Together as families, together as small communities, larger communities, whatever. We show to a watching world that there is reality in our faith. Paul characterizes the fallen world and the society in his time as a crooked and perverse generation. These two adjectives, crooked and perverse, you'll all know, well, you'll hear this word, scolios. <laughs> That's a medical term, right? Diostromenos. Um, uh, express something uh, that is deformed or twisted and thus pictures that which is contrary to God's standards and righteousness. It's, it's twisted in a way that shouldn't be. It's deformed in a way it's not supposed to be. All of this began, of course, at the fall of mankind into sin when Adam and Chava disobeyed and sin entered the world. As we read in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because, and we could clearly uh, understand this to me, and the proof is, all sinned. The fact that we know that death spread to all men is because no one has been perfect that has lived on this earth except for Yeshua. Throughout earth's history, every culture, every people group, every individual has been burdened under the spiritual war that exists in a world tainted by sin and rebellion against God. Only through God's infinite love and mercy has he made the way to redeem to himself a host of people beyond number who would, by his sovereign grace and mercy, be given the gift of repentance and faith and, by being adopted into his family, granted eternal life. What a bountiful gift, beyond our ability to fully express, that God would redeem those who come to him in faith by paying himself the penalty of their sin and adopting them as his own sons and daughters to live forever with him in glory and for his glory. This will be our great privilege throughout eternity to give God the glory. And he adds then to end this verse, among whom you appear as lights in the world. I didn't add this to the notes, but the language here in the Greek Lights could be stars. It's almost like stars in the, in the sky. Yeshua taught his disciples that they were lights in the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What are some of these good works? Well, we could go on and on about that. But genuinely caring for each other is maybe one of the most important because if we genuinely care for each other, we'll do everything not to hurt one another, not to tear each other down. Now, 
we still may need to confront. Truth is truth, and we can speak the truth. And those who say that we're not speaking the truth, we give them the scriptures and show them that. But we still must have it within our hearts to love each other in the best ways possible, as even as God has loved us. If indeed we who profess faith in Yeshua have been given such a promise of life now and forever with Him, and if we seek to fathom the glory and the riches given to us in so great a salvation, we surely will do all in our power to be lights in this world, darkened by falsehood, lies, and perversions that God hates. Yes, this is a dark place. But it can be full of light if we live as, we're, as we should. Because here we even have in our text that we are lights in this world. For it is by our testimony of lives, our words, our actions, that we are enabled both to live as a testimony of the gospel and the glory of our Savior to the unbelieving world, as well as encourage each, each others as believers and believing communities to stand firm for the truth, to raise families that honor the Lord, and to strive to have our local assembly of faith to be itself a shining light for Him and the good news of the gospel in Yeshua. And I close with what one writer summed up, which I thought was, was very good. He's, he does so focusing on the community aspect of these verses and describes that Paul calls the Christian community to fulfill its mission in the world by cleaning up the conversation in the community. When Christian conversation is laced with complaints and personal attacks, Christians have lost their distinctive quality as the children of God in a world characterized by that same kind of negative tone. So we can see, then, in conclusion of this great passage, of these two verses, that loving one another in truth, I'm not talking about just letting things go and pretending everybody's okay. I'm talking about genuinely loving each other, helping each other grow, helping each other to uh, come together and to worship together and to praise Him together and to bear each other's burdens and so forth. I'm talking about all of that. It's when this takes place that a watching world will say, they have something that's valuable. And if someone begins to think they have something that's valuable, they may want to investigate it, and they would be open to hearing the gospel. This may be one of the ways that God enables us to be a witness far better than we ever thought we could. Okay, well, that's uh, where we're going to close for tonight. Lord willing... Uh, we'll see each other uh, next week uh, when we meet again together here in our study of Philippians.